Bong leads us into this realm slowly and expertly, often relying on an eclectic soundtrack, opera one moment, a jazzy all-drum set the next to carry us forward. That's from Chris Knight of the National Post. Parasite is the movie we're reviewing this year. It is quite simply one of the best films of this or any year. Cannot wait to dive into it. I'm thrilled that my man Joe has also seen it and thrilled that all of you are along with us for the ride as always here in Cinephile. Please do spread the love, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Appreciate those who are chiming in. Got this one here from Jay Goads 27 who just subject heading. Great. Love everything with the Bada Bing. I have to skip it every time. Hey, I got good news for you, Jay Goads. We only have two more episodes of Bada Bing. After that, you don't have to skip anything. Normal 30-year-old guy chimes in. I like you on pods. Excellent. Riz CT. Adnan has great energy, and Joe is growing on me. I agree. Joe should have his own segment. Yes. The Joe love is continuing. I love it. I love it. Also here from a Sprig Cub. I also have a passionate love of movies. Great to hear from a true cinephile. Thanks to the pod and diverse views are what makes life fun. Thanks again. Thanks to all of you. And thanks to Shea Serrano, who was terrific. Hey, God, he's such a funny guy. Check out his book, Movies and Other Things. I think it is something that all of you will enjoy, especially if you're a movie lover. I obviously touched on the subjects that I liked, but you know, there's a chapter in the MCU universe. There's you know stuff on Diane Keaton. I mean, there's something for everyone in there. We got a great guest coming up today, Errol Morris. He was on Cinephile previously. He's quite simply one of the greatest documentarians of all time. His movies are legendary, and he's got a new documentary about Steve Bannon, which I saw last week, and then was able to interview Errol about. So we're going to run that, and uh, Errol does not pull any punches. He's also on Alec Baldwin's podcast. So Errol Morris is making the rounds. Uh, I will listen to Alec Baldwin's after, but I promise you, Cinephiles is better. All right, I don't even know yet, but I'm telling you right now, we got great stuff out of Errol Morris, so make sure you listen to that. As I mentioned, the penultimate episode of The Bada Binge, we are almost there. And uh, also, in terms of um, the Mount Rushmore, we're going to do best documentaries. In honor of Errol Morris, famed documentarian, we're going to do our favorite documentaries of all time. Let's dive into Parasite, shall we? The, the less said, the better. And if you haven't seen a trailer yet, don't. And if you haven't read a review, good. I'm not going to spoil anything for you. I will simply say this. It is from uh, Bong Joon-ho, who is a, Bong Joon-ho, excuse me, who is a terrific director, Korean director, and I'm so happy to see this is such a success. This movie has now made $100 million worldwide. It's now made $10 million domestic, which is shocking for a foreign film and a really good sign. It's about class structure and class warfare. I'll read a little bit of Ty Burr's review in the Boston Globe, but I promise it's not going to spoil anything. And then Joe and I are going to discuss as best as we can around the action. But basically, you have this poor family living in squalor. And amidst these squalid circumstances, they're, they're dreaming of a better life and trying to figure out a way they can get there. And so they hatch a plan to infiltrate a rich family. A pair of women's panties placed in the back of Mr. Park's limo gets the current chauffeur bounced and key tack installed in his place, likewise keeping his identity a secret. The Park's longtime housekeeper, Moon Guang, a tougher nut to crack, but eventually Mom Chung Sook rules the park roost in her stead. So they're figuring out a way to get in there, right? It's very insidious. Okay, let's get into this rich family and live a better life for ourselves. This is where Burr really is good. Director Bong combines the cool virtuosity of a Hitchcock with the devilish social satire of Louis Buñuel. At the same time, Parasite is exquisitely Korean and very much Bong. Yet the maddening privilege of the parks, so luxurious and so taken for granted, can be understood by anyone attuned to the absurdities and iniquities of social class. All the performances are sharp as machine-tooled razors. How about Joe is the wealthy young mother, chic, gullible, and almost touchingly naive, the keyword being almost. 
Parasite works as breathless upstairs, downstairs farce at times as the lowly Kims fantasize about taking the park's elegant architectural playground for themselves. Their employers have all the enraging noblesse oblige of the well-intentioned but clueless rich, and we in the audience register every slight they visit on the family of con artists working for them. We empathize with everyone. So there's the story, okay? Con artists trying to infiltrate, and then the story goes from there, and I will not give away any plot details except to say there's a massive twist, which is outstanding, and all of a sudden you say to yourself, this movie is, is maddening in a good way. It's absolutely bonkers. It's a tough movie to categorize. I think you could call it a dark comedy. I think you could call it a thriller. Uh, it's certainly suspenseful. Uh, it's nightmarish at times, but it combines all the great elements of an excellent film. The production design is amazing. So much of it was built from scratch. My buddy Bobby, working in graphics at MLB Network, just told me that yesterday. He said, yeah, they built up the whole thing. It's amazing. Um, so the, the fact that the, the craftsmanship they put together, the directing is phenomenal. My buddy Max Brad also was tweeting about that. He goes, just the skill and the direction, the camera movement. I mean, there's some, you know, beautiful tracking shots, and it's just so um, gorgeously photographed and beautifully filmed, and the acting obviously speaks for itself. And ultimately, though, it has to be the story. And this is a story which is making a comment about class in Korea, but I think it's also a universal statement, and he does so with a lot of flair and a lot of panache. Parasite is so good. It was selling out in theaters in New York City, and I love the fact that people are going to see this movie and really embracing it. It should win foreign language film for sure at the Oscars. It already won the Palme d'Or. That's the equivalent of Best Picture at the Cannes Film Festival. What I'm really hoping for, though, is that it gets nominated for Best Picture because I don't see any way this isn't one of the top five to ten movies of 2019. It's absolutely brilliant. Joe, I know you saw it last night. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. How about you? I could not agree with you more. I absolutely loved it, and kind of sidestep around the plot like you said it it it's very funny at times and unsettling at other times so i highly recommend it anyone listening to this needs to go see this movie yeah and you had an incredible story the backstory as well which you're not going to go into detail but I, the fact that you were able to still you know focus on the elements of the movie joe that's even more impressive i think yeah when i, I had an incident when i went to the theater there was someone in the theater who needed uh, medical attention so the fact that the, I mean, the movie overtook it all. It, it, it was good. I, I just don't know how to describe it because it fits so many different genres that it, I like movies like that, that kind of transcend different genres. Oh, yeah. Joe Morgenstern of The Wall Street Journal said a masterpiece of serial surprises from the Korean filmmaker David Edelstein of Vulture. What keeps you wrapped in Parasite is the visual wit. Every shot distills the movie's themes and the richness of the characters and performances. I did get a message on my Instagram which was uh, amusing. It was, uh, hang on, I'm going to find it here on the way. Yeah, this is from Mogi in Texas. <laughs> Hello, Adnan. Love your cinephile podcast. I had a suggestion for a show. What is the value of a movie critic? You mention reviews. You talk about prestigious writers and movie buffs. Do I often feel like that is not only outdated, but as a younger listener, I don't know who these people are, so I have to wonder, why should I listen to them? Just an idea. Well, Mogi, I'm going to keep going with it because I love movie critics. I want to be a movie critic. I think that they deepen one's appreciation of the film, and that's why I do it so much. I know I wrote that back to you, but in case anybody else is wondering why I mention critics so much, because I love critics. Entertainment news to pass along before we get to Errol Morris. Bill Murray confirmed to return as Dr. Peter Venkman. That's right, Ghostbusters 2020. He's going to come back in the forthcoming sequel revealed by his co-star Dan Aykroyd. While it always seemed likely Murray would return for the new film, first time the news has been officially confirmed. So in addition to Murray and Aykroyd, original Ghostbusters stars Ernie Hudson, Sigourney Weaver, Annie Potts. Not clear exactly how much screen time Murray and the original cast will have as Ghostbusters 2020 is focusing on a newer 
Younger Team of Heroes. Hits theaters July 10th, 2020. Still features a, just a shocking line from the song, Bustin' Makes Me Feel Good. I don't know how they got that through the censors, but go back and listen to the Ghostbusters <laughs> theme song. Bill Murray going to be back. Where are you on Ghostbusters, Joe? Big fan? Oh, yeah, I'm a huge fan. And more importantly, just a bigger fan of Bill Murray. So I'll see anything that he's in. He's back for Ghostbusters. Great. He's in for a small sequel, independent movie. I'm in. Anything he's in, I'll watch. I agree with you on that. He's a national treasure. Speaking of national treasures, Joe Pesci. You can see him in The Irishman, which I just saw for a third time. I watched it in Montclair, New Jersey. My boy Jeff Lovelock, one of my best friends from high school, he was in town for a conference in New York. I was like, oh, we got six hours. Or I want to see the wife and kids, or we can go see The Irishman. Mm, Irishman wins. <laughs> three and a half hours, man. I've seen it three times. It's just incredible. Pesci's so good. Jim Miller recently was on Cinephile. He was talking about Pesci, but the whole movie's phenomenal. I mean, Pacino doesn't win an Oscar. I mean, God, I'll be furious. Uh, it'll hopefully be nominated for all the major categories. We'll talk more about that another time. In terms of Pesci and his musical roots, though, he's coming back to that. He's releasing an album called Pesci, Still Singing, November 29th. Irishman on Netflix, November 27th. His album, Two Days Later. The debut album, Little Joe Sure Can Sing, released in 1968. And his previous album, Vincent LaGuardia Gambini Sings Just For You, released in 1998. Of course, that's his character in My Cousin Vinny. His latest season team up with Maroon 5's Adam Levine as the pair cover My Cherie Amour. Joe Pesci's a singer. I, I'm a big Joe Pesci fan. i got to be honest with you, Joe. I had no idea he's a singer. Oh, yeah. I was listening to some of his uh, 1998 album, and he raps on it, too. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm excited just for the curiosity of what he'll do. <laughs> exactly. Last one here. James Dean reborn in CGI for Vietnam War action drama. 1955 car crash, age of 24, died. Cultural icon known for a rebel without a cause, East of Eden. Posthumously cast in the Vietnam-era action drama Finding Jack. This is bizarre to say the least. Canadian VFX banner Imagine Engine will be working alongside South African VFX company MOI Worldwide to create what the filmmakers describe as a realistic version of James Dean. We searched high and low for the perfect character to portray the role of Rogan, who has some extreme complex character arcs. After months of research, we decided on James Dean. Finding Jack will be live action. But the Hollywood Reporter understands that Dean's performance will be constructed via full-body CGI using actual footage and photos. Another actor will voice him. I mean, if I'm James Dean right now in heaven, I'm like, are you serious? How do I not get the residuals on this? Like, this is brutal. <laughs> I already got robbed by the studios. Now I can't even get money when they're casting the movies when I've been dead for 50, 60 years. Oh, this shouldn't be. This shouldn't be a thing. I, I don't I don't understand why just you know get someone else like Ansel Elgort or something. I don't know why I went with him but you know just a young actor you don't need to go with James Dean what do, what do you think do you think this should be a technology that even exists I should ask no I was gonna say I like the fact that De Niro was joking with the Irishman it's gonna extend his career because he can play younger parts but when a guy's <laughs> dead can't cast him anymore all right Ted Williams cryogenically frozen head leave him alone James Dean is dead leave him alone now it's time for a great documentarian. A real pleasure to welcome back to Cinephile, the great Errol Morris. I spoke to him back in 2017 when he was promoting Wormwood. Quite simply, he's one of the best documentary filmmakers ever. 
The Thin Blue Line, A Brief History of Time, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, Mr. Death, and of course, an Academy Award for The Fog of War. His new film is called American Dharma. It is in select theaters now. It is a portrait of a controversial political strategist, Steve Bannon. Errol, thank you so much for the time. Welcome back. Thanks. The first thought is why. Steve Bannon is a guy who, as I mentioned, controversial is putting it lightly. I think a lot of people don't like him. He's obviously very polarizing. Why would you give him the platform to, to give him this space to tell his story, his version of events, so to speak? I'm not sure I like platform talk. Um, it's become very popular during the Trump administration. Uh, the week before American Dharma premiered at the Venice Film Festival, the editor of The New Yorker canceled Bannon's appearance at a New Yorker festival. Um, this idea, see no evil, hear no evil, um, if you just ignore something bad that's happening or you ignore a bad person who is making bad things happen, we'll just be fine. Um, it's the ostrich idea. Stick your head in a hole in the ground and hope it all goes away. Or if you can't see it, well, maybe it isn't there. Maybe it will just disappear. I would say that's really, really, really stupid because it's not just going to go away. And the only way to deal with it is to look at it to not ignore it, to confront it, to study it, to at least make an attempt to understand it, which is what I did. Yeah, I watched the documentary last night. I thought it was terrific. In particular, the fact that, not that Steve Bannon's a cinephile, but you're using movies and movies he loves to kind of, you know, examine his psyche and the fact he loves 12 O'Clock High with Gregory Peck and, you know, Chimes at Midnight and the whole Henry V sequence and how he... I guess, looks at the scene where Falstaff is, is cast out by Henry V in a completely different way than you. I mean, where was the framework for that from? Where did you think, you know what, I want to kind of get Bannon's movies and the movies that he loves to, as a way to illuminate his psyche? Well, I'm doing something unusual uh, right at the get-go. Uh, most films, if you're creating a portrait, We'll interview 10, 15, 20 people. Um, what do you think about him? Oh, no, no. What do you think about him? What do you think about him? Uh, what you're creating by doing that is an external portrait. And what I've tried to do, to think of it as a trilogy of films, uh, Fog of War with Robert McNamara and The Unknown Known, with Donald Rumsfeld, and now American Dharma with Stephen K. Bannon, is to get inside of their heads, how they see the world, how they look at what they're doing, how they conceive of themselves. And often this incredible disjunction between how they see themselves and who they really are. Um, and that's at the heart, the heart of all three films, certainly at the heart of American Dharma. Because Bannon sees himself as a populist, as a revolutionary, 
as a working class hero. And guess what? He is none of those things. I confront him at one point in the movie saying, this is a very odd kind of populism. You go to Harvard Business School, you work for Goldman Sachs, you buy and sell Hollywood companies, you take money from right-wing billionaires, you promote tax cuts for the wealthy. How is this populism? <laughs> uh, I would have another name for it. I would call it bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and whenever you're raising those issues and kind of looking, I, I think in many ways, Errol, he kind of hangs himself. Like, I think whenever you give him a topic, he kind of starts talking and you can quickly see through the holes of his own argument or his own uh, beliefs, particularly when you brought up the travel ban and you said, you know, I was particularly offended by that. And he says, why? And you said, because its roots of it were so clearly racist. I mean, you clearly were just saying, all right, if you're Muslim, if you have these religious beliefs, we're, we're closing the borders. You, you play that clip of Trump in 2015 saying, anybody who's Muslim, we don't want you in here until we can figure things out. And then Bannon tries to explain it. Can you illuminate for us what you felt Bannon was trying to say? Because I'm telling you right now, I watched the documentary and I still don't get what his rationale or defense of the travel ban was. His Political ideology, if that's what you really want to call it, is so confused, so contradictory. Um, you're asked to buy into a whole set of nonsensical principles. I mean, the scary thing is that a lot of people do buy into them. Oh, okay, we'll build a wall on the southern border, and then we'll protect American jobs. Really? Honestly, you think that? We'll cancel all of our international agreements, we'll impose tariffs, and America will be a safe place for American workers. Great. But the world may not work that way. And everything that you're proposing may not advance the cause of the American middle class, but may hurt it. It's a Looney Tunes character in a Looney Tunes world. What amazes me, do you really think that listening to Bannon is toxic? I find it illuminating. It tells me that these people who claim to know what they're doing know nothing. Pop history, four turnings this, four turnings that. Let's go back to the Crusades. Let's fight the Muslim horde all over again. Let's balkanize the world again. Let's get rid of all international accords and agreements. Let's restart the arm race. Let's proliferate guns everywhere. To call it crazy is being too kind. It's criminal and crazy. Yeah, and if somebody said to me, what does Steve Bannon stand for? I would say, I don't know. Like, I watch it, and all that you're describing is what I think he believes in. He's almost like the Joker. Like, he believes in chaos. He wants everything eliminated. He wants just to bring everything down. He comes across, Errol, like an angry nihilist. And you know why that's the case? Because he is. Why? <laughs> an angry nihilist, yes. There's no positive program here. There's just burn it down. Destroy it all. 
one of the best points you made was about Trump is the perfect F you president. You know, if you don't like the way things are, F you. I don't like, you know, my, like just the world right now. It's exactly what he is for those people. And Bannon kind of laughs when you say it. But I think it was the perfect point you were making. It's like he's he's the president for the dissatisfied, but they don't actually stand for anything. He gets nervous when I say, you want clean water? Fuck you. You want any kind of international agreements or controls that would help the economy? Fuck you. Fuck the U.S. Constitution. Fuck the American democracy. Fuck everything. The appeal of it is what is so really deeply frightening and irrational. If I just watched all of this and said nothing, I would be, in my view, a bad person. I'm not a bad person for making a movie about it. I'd like people to be confronted with it. I'd like people to think about it. I'd like people to think about what they can do about it. I don't want this kind of passive acquiescence to a possible second term. This has to stop. We have to be aware of it. We can't stick our heads in holes in the ground. There's no deplatforming to be done here. It's not deplatforming. It's exposure, confrontation, and figuring out what to do next. We're talking with Aaron Morris. His uh, film is called American Dharma. It is in select theories. It is a, a profile of Stephen K. Bannon. I recommend it highly. Some critics were not kind, Errol. They called it, they said that you were insufficiently confronting Bannon, that there was tacit approval. Owen Gleiberman, Variety's film critic, called it a toothless bromance. What do you say to those charges? Crazy. I mean, maybe, as I found out talking to Bannon, that movies are Rorschach tests. They can mean anything anybody wants them to mean. But to me, it's crazy. Telling Bannon in the movie that he's insane, telling him that he's an anti-populist, if that's a toothless bromance, no, I, I honestly don't get it. The only explanation that I have, here's one possible explanation, that people have been so freaked out by Trump's election, myself included, I might add, one of the worst days of my life, the day that he became the 45th president of the United States. They're so freaked out by this that they want to pretend it hasn't happened. Product of some set of conspiracies, whatever. And if you just crawl under the bed and suck your thumb, it'll go away. Well, it's not going away. And if we're not careful, it'll stay far longer then it should. It should go away as quickly as possible while we still have a country. Yeah, that's well said. You're such a talented filmmaker, and you really use visual themes well. I mean, there's no accident that the interview takes place in an aircraft hangar, and just it's seamless the way you splice together headlines and, you know, with the use of the music and on all the elements together. Um, how painstaking was that in terms of, of trying to I mean, listen, you're trying to make something which is entertainment. At the same time, this guy, I'm sure, is just bloviating about himself. He's got this massive ego, and he thinks that he's actually an agent of history, even though he's, like you said, a lunatic. In terms of the visual style of it, I think that's important for people to realize. This is not just a guy talking to another guy. This is, in many ways, very visual at the um, 
Strong. I think it's my best movie, and I think it is very much a movie, um, a horror movie in many ways, about a world that's gone out of control, about a self-satisfied, self-deceived lunatic who is able, for whatever reason, to convince other people that he makes sense and that he's interested in helping them. It's one of the weirdest phenomenons ever that this guy has gotten some kind of traction. But let me assure everybody, ignoring him is not the way to deal with it. And my movie is not a toothless bromance. This guy is dangerous. And the movie is about how deeply dangerous and self-deceived he is. I said it in a Quonset hut. It's the Quonset hut in 12 o'clock high. Because the movie in 1947, Gregory Peck's movie, is about our attempt to defeat Nazi Germany, which I believe was successful. Our war against fascism. Bannon takes that movie and the central image of that movie as the basis for the 2016 election. Except this time, It's not a war to defeat fascism. It's a war to promote fascism. How's that for irony? (laughs) It's just insane. Uh, It is just insane, yes. In terms of style, Errol, uh, I'm just curious, why did you not use um, the Interatron? I'm I'm maybe butchering the pronunciation, but that... that, No, uh, you're not Okay, good. I always liked to do something different. I also felt that it was important for me to be confronting Bannon, that I be in that same frame. And so in the end, we decided to do it differently. There's a line I very much like from Philip Glass, a composer that I've worked with. We've done five films together. Um, Philip once told me they can always copy what you've done, but they can never copy what you're going to do. And one of the pleasures of filmmaking for me, an ongoing pleasure is finding out different and new ways to do things. So if this movie is different from what I've done before, that's fine. Happy to hear it. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's an amazing career, especially I'm, I'm looking just back at some of these other movies. And it was funny watching it last night. It made me realize, you know, Bannon, as you said, you and I don't share his beliefs. But I was, when I was watching Mr. Death, I remember thinking this guy has this strange allure over me. You know, he's just this creepy kind of charisma. And then, you know, it completely the bottom falls out once I find out he's an anti-Semite. I go, okay, this guy's nuts. But, but it was interesting. You mentioned how Fog of War and there's certain commonalities you might see with McNamara and Bannon. But I was thinking of Mr. Death. Maybe it's because it's one of my favorite movies of yours. But while watching American Dharma, well, I thought you. an awful lot about Mr. Death. As well you should. Um, Fred is perhaps my ultimate self-deceived character. So Fred is a Holocaust denier and an electric chair designer and repair man. He's the Maytag man from hell. Uh, We're down in the death chamber in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. And we're shooting a scene with the electric chair that he built and installed. 
or as he would describe it, it's my electric chair system. He tells us in the movie that he drinks 40 cups of coffee a day. He's an amazing chain smoker. I don't know how many packs. He's a chimney, five, six, seven, eight packs of cigarettes a day. It's amazing he's still alive. Every time he's smoking a cigarette and we put the camera on, he stubs the cigarette out. So I say, Fred, this is Mr. Death, Fred Lucher. Fred, how come you won't allow us to film you smoking a cigarette? There he is, there's the electric chair in the background. He looks at me in complete earnestness and says, you have to understand, I'm a role model for children. So this is the kind of thing I live for. Yes, you got me. I'm a connoisseur of human insanity. There's nothing that gives me greater pleasure than talking to crazy people. Okay, it's a weakness. I'm sorry. But yes, it endlessly fascinates me how people are incapable of seeing themselves. And I may be like them. I'm not saying I'm excluded from all of this. People are incapable of seeing who they are, what they're saying, what they're doing. Bannon can strut around with his three shirts, you know, his workman's yeah, but, By the way, sorry to interrupt, Earl. Why does he wear three shirts all the time? What the hell is that about? Well, the best answer I've heard came from my wardrobe person. And I said, what the hell is the three shirts about? And he said, oh, it's to hide the tail. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, that makes sense to me. Thank you. Oh, that's funny. One more, just because I love this doc so much, and it doesn't get nearly enough play. Fast, cheap, and out of control. Again, get it out a there. look at. Encourage people to see it. Uh, it's so great, Errol, because you know what it's about? It's kind of like what you're describing here with insanity, but it's about obsessive people who have eccentric interests. And I just, I love that theme and the lion tamer, like everything about that movie is brilliant. I wish more people talked about fast, cheap and out of control when they talked about your career. Oh, well, thank you. I love that movie too. American Dharma is currently in theaters. I encourage everyone to go see it. It is a portrait of Stephen K. Bannon. And as always, whenever Errol Morris puts something out, it's a must watch. Appreciate the laughs. Appreciate your work as always, Errol. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Take care. Mount Rushmore. All right, Errol Morris, always fantastic. Make sure you check out American Dharma. I could obviously put all four of his movies in the Mount Rushmore, the greatest documentarians of all time, uh, because seriously, he's made so many great ones. I mentioned Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. It's very underrated. Seriously, you should go see it. But obviously, Fog of War, you know, won an Academy Award, and he's obviously made a tremendous amount of documentaries. So I will exclude Errol Morris in the, in the interest of just having other documentaries featured for a Mount Rushmore of my favorite documentaries. So here we go. When We Were Kings, Leon Gast, fantastic. Muhammad Ali, 
Rumble in the Jungle, he and George Foreman, compelling storytelling. You have writers like Norman Mailer and George Plimpton who are so engaging and interesting, and they tell awesome anecdotes about Ali's return, the fact that everybody was you know, given up for him because of the fact that he was just a different fighter. When he was younger, it was leaner and just so fast when he was Cassius Clay. Later, he becomes Muhammad Ali, obviously banished from the sport for a few years, comes back heavier, bigger, thicker. Uh, but the game plan was so smart. Just take a pounding and just come back roaring, just like a jaguar. Like literally just have George Foreman exhaust himself and then come back. And just the physicality that Ali was able to withstand such a beating and then like a cat just come alive and just destroy Foreman. And just the backstories and James Brown's there and Black Power. I mean, there, there's so many themes to that. And most of all, it's just a, a testament to the power and the charisma of Muhammad Ali. When We Were Kings is a great, great movie. Hoop Dreams is one of my favorite basketball movies. That tells the story of uh, Tommy Agee and uh, what's the other guy's name? I, William Gates and uh, their story growing up in Chicago. And it's an amazing story because the best sports movies are not just about sports, they're about life. And this is about two guys trying to escape the inner city of Chicago through basketball. And, you know, it is hard hitting, it is harrowing. You see people dealing with drug problems or just poor grades, absentee fathers. I mean, there's a lot that's going on in this movie. You're pulling for these guys, and yet it's unsentimental. Steve James, obviously, another excellent documentarian. He does not pull any punches. Um, it's long, but I think it's really absorbing because it's a real slice of life, and it's a life that a lot of people, unfortunately, have to live in the margins, and yet it's still hopeful and optimistic. It makes you realize you know, just how great a game basketball is. One of the great uh, miscarriages of justice, the fact it wasn't even nominated for the Best Academy Award at the Oscars, which is shocking. Uh, Man on Wire is a great one, more recent one. Uh, that's the story of Philippe Petit, who uh, walked across the Twin Towers. Um, God, it was beautifully shot. They do a lot of recreation and stuff, and he as a character is just so funny and interesting. And that's another documentary that is inspiring. Um, you know, when you have his co-conspirators tell him that moment when he actually crossed, they said it was just breathtaking. And this guy's literally, it almost looked like he was walking on air. It's a documentary that really believes in the power of dreams. Even though this guy technically was a criminal and a con man, you're not supposed to be doing these things and trespassing and all the rest of it. It's like, no, but the art of what he was accomplishing totally made it worth it. For a guy to actually walk in the clouds, man on wire is a beauty, uh, respectfully and rightfully won the documentary Oscar a few years ago. And my favorite documentary, so happy my brother told me that Vince Gilligan in many ways, when he looked at Better Call Saul, the brother relationship, he was at least inspired by or based upon Terry Zweigoff's Crumb. Brilliant movie. Brilliant, brilliant movie. Siskel and Ebert, they both championed that movie. They both had it in their top two of the 1995. It's the story of R. Crumb, who is a cartoonist who certainly delves into the surreal and maybe a little bit disturbing material, but he came from a really screwed up family. I mean, to put it lightly, he's got a brother who's like a wreck. He's got one brother who's like a shut-in. Parents were just disapproving. And so out of all of this dysfunction, he found art as his respite. And that's why whenever, you know, people look at art and say, I don't really understand the point of all this. Who cares about movies or television or drama or any of this? I always think of Crumb because that shows how art can be someone's salvation. You know, without sounding pretentious or melodramatic, it totally is true. Without being a cartoonist, without having this outlet for all of this emotion, I don't think our Crumb would have been able to survive. It would have been like the rest of his family. But he can put all of his weird obsessions and just bizarre fantasies and, you know, gets off on piggybacks and all this stuff. Like just, he just puts it all in the cartoons. And, and even though it's not for the squeamish, those who understand art will say, no, at the very least, it's authentic and it's honest and it's raw. 
and he's really coming from the heart and putting himself out there. And I just thought it was such a brave testament to that. And, you know, even as a character, as I said, he's eccentric to say the least, and his family is very bizarre. But the documentary is not only very smart, but it's also really funny. And Terry Zweigoff did a masterful job with Crumb. If you haven't seen it, you got to go see it. It's one of my, it is my favorite documentary. I figured just now as I was talking, I've got to figure out a way to get Capturing the Freedmans in there. So I, I didn't get it in there, but that's also an incredible documentary. Phenomenal, phenomenal movie. And we'll call that an honorable mention. But Capturing the Freedmans is also good. Great documentaries. When We Were Kings, Hoop Dreams, Man on Wire, and Crumb. And I'm going to squeeze in uh, Capturing the Freedmans as well. Joe? I have... Just to get it out of the way, Woodstock, 1970, just, I think it does a great job of capturing the scope and scale of that festival. Plus, I'm a huge classic rock fan, so I'll throw Woodstock in on there. And then I'll throw in Wiener, uh, the Anthony Wiener documentary from 2016, only because the crew following him didn't set out to make the documentary they did. They set out to make a documentary about his comeback, and then this huge scandal broke, and they just had complete access to him and then this 2018 documentary three identical strangers i don't know if you've oh, seen it i did really good i mean that that twist you're like oh my god oh that's what yeah happened. okay it starts it's very out, sad yeah very sad and it starts out kind of as one thing and then it flips halfway through the movie and becomes a totally different documentary and then my last one is adding in this one's a real downer but it's how to survive a plague it's from 2012 and it's about the aids epidemic and it, it will tear you down because it's just about the government ignoring the whole entire AIDS epidemic. But it also will build you up because it just shows this grassroots campaign and how to start a movement from just a small group of people to a national stage. So how to survive a plague. It's incredible. It's long. It'll bum you out. But it's great. Those are my four. Okay, your choice is definitely more despairing and depressing documentaries. Like, at least I threw in a When We Were Kings, right? You want to like, you know, yes, Ali, Boumaye. Like you get fired up after it. Your choices are just like, hey, just just, just revel in the misery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How about the fact, and neither of us include a Michael Moore documentary, which is a little bit surprising. I mean, maybe I would throw in a Roger and Me because it was so important at the time or Bowling for Columbine is obviously entertaining, but I'm not putting it in my top four. You? Yeah, I'm not putting it in my top four either. I do, I do like both of those, um, but I, I just... You know, if we're doing the Mount Rushmore, they, they can be on the second Mount Rushmore if they if, if we're doing right. that. But Michael Moore, second Mount Rushmore. Exactly. The right. alternate Rushmore, as it were. Yeah, exactly. The ones with the other presidents. <laughs> the Bada Binge. All right. Second last episode here of the Bada Binge. Very polarizing here, according to Apple Podcasts. People love it or hate it. Mark Simon's skipping it. Some other guy's skipping it. Other people tell me they love it. So honestly, let's revel in with the greatest shows of all time. Chasing It, season seven, episode four, written by Matthew Weiner. Later, of course, became the guy who did Mad Men. First time you see that Tony Soprano has a gambling problem. I mean, it took this long with literally episodes left. You're like, hey, man, this guy's got a serious gambling issue. And as he explains it, you start chasing it. Every time you get your hands around it, you fall further backwards. You see with James Gandolfini's melancholy performance, there's always this unease that's more profound than the fear of ending up dead or in jail. This is from the book, The Soprano Sessions. Always an excellent read. Matt Zoller cites Alan Sepinwall. Check out the book from them for more on The Sopranos, which I'm using here as a guide. Tony's all-consuming and previously unremarked upon gambling addiction works mostly as something more than a standard network TV crisis of the week improv. When a character is convincingly drawn, the details of his self-destructive compulsion don't matter. What's important is that it makes sense given what we know about the character and that it arrives at a critical juncture in the storyline. 
It's also a pivotal moment in the episode's B-plot. Vito Spadafore Jr., the goth-posing, profoundly troubled son of a slain gay mobster. That's right, Vito's kid. He responds to bullying in the boys' locker room at school by defecating in the shower. Later on, you see Tony, angry at his wife, says, the fact is you're a lousy businesswoman built a piece of crap house that's going to cave in and kill that unborn baby one day. Now you can't sleep. And what a horrible thing to say. I mean, talk about the horrible things he said to Carmel. That's up there. But back to Vito Jr., you know, the fact that he knows that his dad was killed, not for what he did, but for who he was. Right? Story gets around. Kids figure it out. Oh, because he was gay. My dad was gay. They killed him, the mobsters. And so the continued defamation of his dad's memory by the same thugs who rooted for his demise. He responds by facing his tormentor, squeezing out a deposit and mashing it beneath his bare foot. What a horrible sequence. It's social terrorism, a visual and olfactory assault that clears the room. It could only have been committed by a human being who cannot understand, much less articulate, the source of his unhappiness, but has decided that if he cannot master or destroy his environment, he'll deface it. So you've got poor Vito Jr. here. You see the impact of the mob. Not only the dad who was murdered with a pull cue up his, but also the kid now struggling. Uh, as I mentioned, you, you've also got Tony's debt, and there's a sequence here. There's a bit of anti-Semitic baiting of Hesh, who's an underrated character, and the fact that he doesn't even react when he finds that Hesh's girlfriend, Renata, is dead. Astoundingly cold response. He drops off a sack full of cash to pay off his debt and leaves as quickly as possible. Also, as the boys mentioned, canny use when AJ proposes to Blanca of the main theme from 1978's The Deer Hunter, a movie about how men express emotion by not expressing it, referenced in a scene where a man defies gender stereotype and speaks from the heart. AJ, as he says, all I know is I just don't feel it. That's what she says to him, rather, and that ends up screwing things up. Walk Like a Man, season, uh, season 7, episode 5, written and directed by Terrace Winter. Uh, this one's all, <laughs> you got JT saying, Chris, you're in the mafia. No. Uh, Christopher here, he, he wants an authentic connection. You know, he, he Reassurance that he can finally tell the truth about who he is, what he'd done without being manipulated or punished or sold out. But as JT, the writer, says to him, you're in the mafia. I mean, there's no way of staying sober or feeling better because of the business he chose. This is what Melfi keeps trying to help Tony see. It's what Dr. Krakauer said to Carmela. It's the most honest thing anyone's ever said to Christopher. And he ends up shooting the messenger. So you got Chris's old problems once again. But this episode, Walking Man, you know, it, again, it shows how the, the problems doesn't necessarily care about gangsterism, but psychotherapy and the way these guys treat each other. The whole issue of, of fathers and sons. You know, Tony vocally obsesses over the idea that both criminality and depression are genetic, even as he rejects to Christopher the notion that alcoholism is an inherited disease like Alzheimer's. If Chris's dad and Tony's hero, Dickie Moltisanti, was nothing but a junkie, as Chris says at the barbecue, then what does that make Tony? Nothing but an overeating, boozing, coke-snorting, stripper-banging fraud. Tony tries to save his own son, who he fears will follow him into mob life by commanding him to attend a party at the Bing. That's a mob-run flesh pit, whereas Christopher knows booze and sex are everywhere, and half the strippers are cokeheads. Tony evinces a similar push-pull attitude towards Christopher. As Chris points out, Tony's the kind of guy who will pour a recovering alcoholic a drink and then judge him for taking it. This episode really works as a setup for what happens with episode six, one of the strongest episodes of the entire Sopranos run, Kennedy and Heidi. And the moment where Tony Soprano, for all his flaws, as you know what, I kind of like the guy because he's funny and he's endearing. And he is dealing with a lot of stuff here and maybe he's an anti-hero that I can appreciate. At this point, I said, no, enough's enough because he kills Christopher, my favorite character. As the two girls say after... The car crash happens. Maybe you should go back, Heidi, says Kennedy. Heidi's reply, Kennedy, I'm on my learner's permit after dark. So they don't want to go back there as David Chase's view of human nature is bleak. 
And so what's important for Chase's purposes is that they're presented with a moral test. They not only fail it, they don't seem terribly aware that it was a test. Tony and Chris are in the other car. They spin out. The girls don't want to go back and help. And now it's just a matter of survival. As Tony thinks about it and says, you know what? I'm going to snuff out this guy right now. He's a lying drug addict. My cousin's nothing but a weakness at this point. I don't care. And as Chris says, I'm never going to pass the, the test because he's high or drunk or whatever it is. And you see a great cutaway as Tony looks back to the uh, car seats in the back. He's like thinking, this guy, his daughter would have been dead because that's exactly where the tree branch went in there. And he's like, you know what? I'm actually doing a betterment for society. This guy's daughter would have been killed. I need to be alive or he'd go to prison because he's clearly high and he's a real pain to me. So you know what? He's done. If you're numb to, mortal- to morality, to empathy, you can do whatever you want and feel little or no guilt. Comfortable numbness here as Tony's non-response it isn't just physical trauma. He's lucid after the accident. He's lucid enough to abort his first 911 call and murder Christopher. He finally smothers someone to death. Unlike his attempt with Livia, he doesn't even need a pillow. He later mentions incredulously, perhaps with a glimmer of deep guilt, he escaped the wreck with no serious injuries. Later on at Chris's wake, he tells the director of Cleaver about seeing that tree branch juxtaposed with Chris's daughter's car seat. His affable delivery is so inappropriate. Ironically, it could be interpreted as the behavior of a man in shock. But his expression as he kills Chris is horrifying. It's the face of a predator acting on instinct, completely inscrutable. Later on, Tony sees his luck change. He goes out to Vegas. He ends up sleeping with Chris's stripper girlfriend. He tells you know, people he's going to go to Vegas to clean up Christopher's unfinished business. And sends us up partying with people who should be grief-stricken. He's there partying in hell, so to speak, as Sonia, Sarah Shahi. Um, she's the one who kind of... I guess kind of is attracted to Christopher. And by the way, as the guys mentioned here in their footnotes, does anybody in the business play grief better than Edie Falco? Carm's reaction to Chris's death is almost as devastating as her hallway crying jag in the first Costa Mesa episode. Almost as brilliant in a different way as her delivery of the line about Juliana, who reeks of mistress to Carm being a good-looking woman. Ultimately, Tony goes to Vegas. He sleeps with Chris's stripper girlfriend, takes some peyote, and ends up gambling and having a blast. And as he watches the sunrise in the Vegas desert, he's full of joys we've never seen him. He yells out, I get it. I get it. I still don't totally understand what he gets, but I think he, he at least feels like Christopher was wearing him down. And without Christopher, life is better. And so he gets it that this guy was a real pain to me. He made the right thing to do. I don't know. Maybe he's thinking, I get it. I had so many close calls that I can do whatever I want. Either way, he does not act like a guy who is suffering or in distress. He murders his cousin, who as many times he refers to as like a son, and he feels absolutely no remorse. If you want to see how cold a character Tony Soprano is, there's your answer. The last episode of The Bada Binge will be coming up next time. Thanks again to Errol Morris. He was tremendous as always. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to my man Joe. And please do give us some love on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review. You can see us on Twitter, Cinephile Pod. My own personal handle, Adnan S. Firk. We put up audiograms there featuring some of our best content. So please do spread the love as Oscar season continues. Talk to you next week. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. <laughs>